Pakistan launches retaliatory strikes into Iran. In the operation codenamed Death to Terrorists, Pakistan said it killed several terrorists of Pakistani origin across the border. Israel says no to a two-state solution. They, they think that, that the Bible promised those lands to them, and if they give them up, at least some people believe this, they betray God. And a Ukrainian-Canadian band sings at a New York Global Music Festival. Balaclava Blues took the stage for a set at David Geffen Hall. The band is a labor of love for husband and wife Mark and Marichka Marchik. Today is Friday, January 19th, and this is VOA's International Edition. I'm Scott Walterman. Tensions have been high between neighbors Pakistan and Iran since each conducted airstrikes on the other's territory this week. VOA's Pakistan bureau chief, Sara Zaman, reports that analysts say statements from the two countries show both sides want to de-escalate. Pakistan said Thursday that its early morning strikes inside Iran were not an attack on its neighbor. Pakistani Foreign Ministry spokesperson Mumtaz Zahra Baloch. The sole objective of today's act was in pursuit of Pakistan's own security and national interest, which is paramount and cannot be compromised. In the operation codenamed Death to Terrorists, Pakistan said it killed several terrorists of Pakistani origin across the border. A military statement said maximum care was taken to avoid collateral damage, but Iran said four children and three women were among the nine dead. The attack came in response to Iran's strikes inside Pakistan on Tuesday. Tehran said it targeted only Iranian terrorists, but Islamabad said two Pakistani children were killed and at least three civilians were injured. Tehran also fired missiles at targets in Syria and Iraq this week. Sayyid Muhammad Ali is an Islamabad-based defense analyst. Perhaps uh, this uh, irresponsible uh, act of aggression, not just against Pakistan, but also against Iraq and Syria, uh, is... Uh, a consequence of uh, the political need of the ideological uh, leadership of Iran to divert and diffuse domestic and external pressure. The pressure, experts say, comes from the Israel-Hamas war in Gaza that has killed thousands of Palestinians. They say Hamas and Houthi rebels, both of which the U.S. has designated as terror outfits, as well as Lebanon-based Hezbollah, want Iran to do more. Islamabad and Tehran often push each other to act against anti-state militants active along the border. Pakistani observers say the country had no choice but to retaliate. Aisha Siddiqa is a senior fellow at King's College London who specializes in military affairs. Anyone can then use this argument that, you know, there are militants sitting in Pakistan and come and attack it. So the response was necessary, cautious, but necessary. After the strikes, both sides issued statements that referred to each other as brotherly countries and implied that no fighter jets violated airspace and no boots were put on the ground. Defense analyst Ali. There is a desire, uh, an inclination to exercise restraint and manage escalation to prevent uh, uncontrolled escalation, which will not uh, be in the interest of either Pakistan and Iran. Pakistan is home to mostly Sunni Muslims, while the majority of Iran's Muslims are Shiite. Siddiqa worries the latest tension could spiral into sectarian strife. Pakistan has been through the 90s through a very bad patch of sectarian violence. So I think there is no option for either Iran or Pakistan 
but to talk to each other and to cool down the temperature. Uh, it has to find the right partners that can sit, who can help and, and do that conversation. China has said it's willing to play a role if both sides wish. For now, Islamabad has suspended diplomatic ties with Tehran. Sara Zaman, VOA News, Islamabad. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu on Thursday rejected U.S. calls to take steps towards the establishment of a Palestinian state after the war, drawing an immediate reaction from the White House. This is not a new comment by Prime Minister Netanyahu. We obviously see it differently. Uh, we believe uh, that the Palestinians have every right to live uh, in an independent state with peace uh, and security. Um, and the president and his team is going to continue to work on that. White House National Security Spokesperson John Kirby. The tense back and forth reflected what has become a wide rift between the U.S. and Israel. Joining us now to talk about the two-state solution is Michael Province, who teaches modern Middle East history at the University of California, San Diego. It's so much more complicated than it seems it has to be, I mean, right? The, the, at, on first brush, you go, oh, two-state solution, that's simple and elegant. But yeah. it's anything but that, isn't it? Well, I mean, you know, um, the last uh, Israeli prime minister who really came close got uh, assassinated for his trouble. So that gives you an indication of how, of how, uh, of how complicated and, and, and fraught it is. And the current prime minister attended rallies a few days before and, you know, basically said people who betray the state should be killed. <laughs> So that's, that, that was in 1995 and 1996, of course. So uh, Netanyahu has been, his first prime ministerial uh, campaign in 1996 was predicated on the promise that he would stop uh, the peace process, the so-called two-state solution. So that was almost, what, getting up close to almost 30 years ago. And also, I mean, it's sort of an unspoken, because there's so much else going on, it's not unspoken for some insidious reason, but the, this lack of movement on a two-state solution, you could say, was a factor in what happened with Hamas coming to power, Hamas making the attack on October 7th. I mean, all of this led to this, did it not? Of course, there's always a history. There's always a history and there's always people who want to want to deal with things without the historical context for their own contemporary political reasons. So, you know, the 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 history provides the reasons and the understanding. And if we don't want to understand if we don't want to understand why things happen, uh, then you know, then we're our chances of, of uh, improving things for anybody is very very bleak. I would say. So, give us a big picture um, for people that don't really know what is the two state solution. Why? How long have they been working on the two state solution? Why hasn't it happened? Sure. Well, so. What we, when we say, when people talk about the two-state solution, what they're really talking about is partition, partition of the British, uh, what was the British mandate for Palestine from 19, 
1920 to 1948, and then the part of uh, 68% of which became the state of Israel in 1948. So partition was proposed in 1937 uh, under the British mandate when the British government found out that they could not manage uh, their promises to the, the Zionist movement and the Palestinian indigenous population. And it was unsuccessful then. And then the United Nations uh, proposed a partition plan in 1947 uh, to create two states, an Arab state and a Jewish state. And that was unsuccessful because of the civil war, the War of Independence, or the Nakba, as it's called by the Arabs, by the Palestinians, or the catastrophe. And then uh, the the idea of partition reemerged uh, after the 67 war when, when Israel uh, conquered and occupied uh, the West Bank, uh, uh, Gaza, the Golan Heights, and all of Sinai uh, at that time. And the only place that has been withdrawn from, evacuated, is Sinai uh, in a practical way. I mean, the United, Israel clearly still controls Gaza. Uh, though, you know, it's the dis, this, this so-called disengagement, the unilateral disengagement of 2005 was. So after 67, the idea of withdrawing from those states in exchange for a, a peace um, agreement, diplomatic normalization with all of the Arab states and, and a Palestinian state emerging in, in Gaza and in the West Bank emerged as, a, as an idea. But the Israeli right never was in favor of this and never wanted to get up, give up anything. And in fact, is very uh, uh, assiduous and determined to make sure that those territories can never be evacuated, uh, especially the West Bank. So, you know, this is, and like I say, in 1995, uh, Yitzhak Rabin was assassinated by a settler uh, over his willingness to evacuate those territories, so you know it's um, it's 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 almost a guarantee of of civil conflict in Israel if the actual withdrawal from the actual uh, uh, withdrawal from the territory that would that is required for a two state solution to take place uh, um, transpired. So that's the those that's why it's complicated. So. If you had to, if you were you, if you were going to bet on it, <laughs> okay. do you think that a two-state solution is possible in any near future? Well, I, you know, um, no, not really, uh, because the opposition in Israel is too entrenched and and holds political power actually, so. You know, the moments when the United States had leverage and power have passed. And, in fact, President Biden had leverage and power in October 7th, and he didn't, he, he didn't use that, and he doesn't have it now. Um, so at least not in the same way that he did it at that time. So the United States, you know, has not been very constructive or focused or, or determined to make things happen in this area. And as time goes by it gets more and more difficult because people don't want it. The Israeli right doesn't want it. They are opposed to it. They, they think that, that the Bible promised those lands to them, 
And if they give them up, at least some people believe this, they betray God. Michael Province teaches modern Middle East history at the University of California, San Diego. We're following these other stories from around the world. Turkey's first astronaut and three other crew members representing Europe were launched from Florida on Thursday on a voyage to the International Space Station. In the latest commercially arranged mission from Texas startup Axiom Space. The Serbian opposition on Thursday petitioned the Constitutional Court to overturn the results of municipal elections in Belgrade that were part of bitterly contested nationwide polls last month. Increased carbon dioxide in the atmosphere this year will exceed key trajectories for limiting warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius. Britain's Met Office made the prediction on Friday, with researchers reaffirming that only drastic emissions cuts can keep the target in sight. Turkey has joined with Bulgaria and Romania to clear mines from the Black Sea, facilitating Ukrainian efforts to export grain to world markets. But as Dorian Jones reports now from Istanbul, Turkey is also resisting calls to allow NATO mine-clearing ships. In Istanbul this month, Turkey, Bulgaria and Romania signed an agreement to clear mines in the Black Sea from the Ukrainian war. With several cargo ships already hit, mines are an increasing menace to one of the world's most important waterways for exporting grain and energy. Typhoon Uzbek is a former Turkish naval officer and now a defense analyst. Because the merchant ships cannot detect these mines as they are semi-submerged on the water and uh, when they detect them, it, may, it, it might be late for them to save themselves. Analysts say removing the threat of mines will be a significant boost to Ukraine's efforts to export grain to world markets after the collapse of a grain exporting deal with Russia, brokered by Turkey and the United Nations. Analysts say Russia is threatening Ukrainian exports by saying it cannot guarantee the safety of the ships. But Ankara hopes increasing security for Ukrainian ships could be an impetus for Moscow to return to the grain deal with Ukraine. Mesut Jarshan is a presidential advisor at Istanbul's Yeditepe University, who says mine clearing is key. I hope that it is very beneficial for the Ukraine side in order to export the grain. You remember that Russia was withdrawal of this. Other side in the, uh, perhaps the Russia may become again to the table. Hey, come on and we discuss together. The Turkish Navy has modern mine clearing capabilities and the support of Romania and Bulgaria. But observers warn the challenge facing the NATO allies is considerable. Typhon Uzbek is a former Turkish naval officer and now a defense analyst. The locations and numbers of the sea mines are unknown and you have to uh, detect them first. Uh, you have to seek and destroy. Uh, they take time. Britain has offered to deploy mine-clearing ships, but Turkey, citing the International Montreux Convention, has been blocking entry to all warships since the start of the Ukraine war. As a member of NATO, Turkey is balancing its relations with the West and with Russia and Ukraine in a bid to end the conflict. 
Analysts say removing the danger of mines from vital trade routes in the Black Sea would be a small step toward that goal. Dorian Jones, VOA News, Istanbul. VOA's International Edition continues. I'm Scott Walterman. The need to move wounded soldiers from remote front lines to safety with limited resources has forced Ukrainian volunteers to innovate a way to turn used SUVs into casualty evacuation vehicles, or Kazivaks for short. Lisa Bakalets visited a workshop in Kyiv where the old cars are repurposed into life-saving vehicles. At this workshop in Kyiv, used SUVs get a second life and a new life-saving purpose. Our goal is to buy relatively cheap cars and remodel them as much as possible so that it's convenient for medics to evacuate wounded soldiers. Alexander Boros joined the Tactical Medicine Nurse Volunteer Medical Unit at the beginning of the war. Besides being a medical instructor, he's launched a project to make casualty evacuation vehicles or casualvacs. In general, a casivac is anything that delivers a wounded soldier from the combat zone to the evacuation point. It can be a bicycle, an ordinary stretcher, a helicopter, anything. In our case, it's remodeled SUVs. Volunteers say they tried to camouflage a car, so it's inconspicuous. The car's body shell is also changed for an armored one. We disassemble the car, fully remove the interior, seats and paneling, and remove the windows. Then we make the floor, sew up the windows, and add the right chairs, vent trays, hanging organizers. After remodeling, the interior looks more like an ambulance. Here we have a place for a lying patient and a place for a doctor. We also arrange light masking in all of our Kazivaks. We make them red, blue or green. This light is not so demasking as a white one when you need to open the door at night. Volunteers buy the used SUVs in Europe. The purchase price and remodeling are financed through donations. Depending on a car's condition, the transformation process could take from several days to several weeks. We're overloaded now. Our entire garage is full of cars for remodeling. I've joined the team recently, but already have worked on eight cars. Volunteers say cashbacks are essential on the front lines, and the need of them is endless. Lysia Kaletz, VOA News, Kyiv. And finally... At an international music festival in New York City, a Ukrainian-Canadian band sings songs about strength and resisting the Russian invasion. The band is one of ten groups from all over the world performing at Global Fest. Jyoti Ricky reports from New York City. Take a trip around the world, hearing music spanning continents from Moroccan-French quartet, Babla Blues to Indian-American Karsh Kale. All played at Global Fest, an international music festival earlier this week at New York City's Lincoln Center. Music is a key way to um, really, for artists to express themselves, but also for the, you know, the world to really understand what's happening 
around them. The festival seeks to create moments of musical discovery through cultural awareness, a mission organizers feel is ever more important as conflicts rage on around the world. Balaclava Blues took the stage for a set at David Geffen Hall. The band is a labor of love for husband and wife Mark and Marichka Marchik, who met in Ukraine during the 2014 pro-European protests. That's really where we sort of met and fell in love. Mark, a Canadian, was in Kyiv working on a film when he saw Marichka, a Ukrainian ethnomusicologist, singing traditional songs at a demonstration honoring young men who had been killed by anti-riot police. It was the start of a romantic and professional journey across nations. This past October, Marichka returned to Ukraine to serve her people. She's a combat medic in eastern Ukraine. She serves for the, uh, she's a volunteer for the third tank platoon of the armed forces of Ukraine, uh, which means that she's, uh, she lives in, uh, you know, abandoned houses and villages that are mostly abandoned and shelled out. A multimedia performance by the band combined themes of loss, violence, and strength with a blend of Ukrainian polyphony and contemporary electronica. That's for sure challenging. It's challenging to be in both worlds because they're so completely different. Less than a week ago, you know, she was sleeping in a car in a field while waiting to get a command of which next town to go to. And through events like this, the Marchiks want their audience to experience the two contrasting worlds they live in. One thing that I really respect about Global Fest, they don't shy away from having difficult conversations through music. Balaclava Blues want the people around the world to know about the brutal war raging in Ukraine. Any profits off merchandise the band sells go directly to the Ukrainian army. Jyoti Reiki, VOA News, New York City. This has been International Edition on The Voice of America. On behalf of everyone at VOA, thank you so much for joining us. For pictures, stories, videos, and more, follow VOA News on your favorite social media platform and online at voanews.com. In Washington, I'm Scott Walterman. Next, an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. The United States continues to conduct defensive strikes against sites in Yemen as the Iran-backed Houthis keep up their attacks on commercial shipping in the Red Sea. In the days following a large defensive airstrike operation January 11th against Yemeni sites by the United States and Britain, with support from Australia, Bahrain, Canada and the Netherlands, the Houthis again fired ballistic missiles into the Red Sea, including against a Maltese-flagged bulk carrier and a U.S.-owned and operated container ship. The U.S. responded by launching additional airstrikes targeting Houthi positions in Yemen. In a statement concerning the January 11th strikes by the U.S. and Britain, President Joe Biden noted that the defensive operation, which targeted Houthi missile, radar, and unmanned aerial capabilities, came after weeks of warnings by the United States, dozens of other nations, and the U.N. Security Council, urging the Houthis to stop their attacks on commercial shipping. These attacks, he said, have endangered U.S. personnel, civilian mariners, and our partners 
partners jeopardized trade and threatened freedom of navigation. President Biden also declared, I will not hesitate to direct further measures to protect our people and the free flow of international commerce as necessary. At a press briefing following the Houthis' continued missile attacks in the Red Sea, National Security Council Coordinator for Strategic Communication John Kirby said in regard to the American and British airstrikes of January 11th, the United States had fully anticipated that the Houthis would probably conduct some retaliatory strikes. However, he noted, by degrading their military capability, we are making it harder for them to conduct these attacks. NSC Coordinator Kirby emphasized that the United States stands ready to defend our interests, our sailors, our ships, and that of merchant shipping as required. We're not looking for a war, he said. We're not looking to expand this. The Houthis have a choice to make, and they still have time to make the right choice, which is to stop these reckless attacks. That was an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. 